0: Thank you. show and our latest round of listener questions my name is ryan bailey adjust your expectations of the broadcasting standards of this episode accordingly Woo! joining me today is a man whose lexicon leans on the word y'all a lot more than i realized before listening to the Kooligans episode of total soccer show from wednesday taylor rockwell hello
1: Yep, I wondered about that. Hello, buddy. Yeah, Whenever I'm dealing with multiple people, y'all becomes plural, and y'all is the best word for a plural group of people, especially these days, but you do end up using it a lot. It does become a common thing. I wonder how many times I said it in the first five minutes. Uh,
0: No complaints to me. I like it as a word, and I I sometimes use it myself, even though it sounds utterly ridiculous saying it in this (laughs) accent. Um, A really good episode, if you haven't heard it, by the way, with the Hooligans. Very good chat you had with them, Taylor. I did enjoy it. My my highlight was them complaining about um, getting to Heathrow getting to the airport in London taking hours and hours these people live in New York City and they're complaining about taking a long time to get to the airport I enjoyed that
1: you couldn't see their faces Uh, I could because we did it via video but just recorded the audio but Alexis the whole time Christian was telling that story had a very confused look on his face and as you may have guessed (laughs) it was because he took the tube and it took him 20 minutes and it took Alexis two hours by car
0: yeah there you go all right also here joining us is a man I want to hear say y'all right now Graham can I hear y'all
2: Y'all, hello,
0: <laughs>
3: y'all.
0: How are you? All Great right, Robin. That was wonderful. Thank you very much. That was more than I'd hoped for. By the way, um, <laughs> in in the apartment I used to live in in Charlotte, the the lovely lady at the front desk used to use y'all multiple times in the same sentence. To be like, mm-hmm. uh, y'all got y'all's keys. I can get them for y'all if y'all want. And it's like, like
2: punctuation.
0: Yeah, it's it's every other word. It was brilliant. I loved it. I loved
1: yeah, it. Yeah. What do you, what do you do if if two groups of people come together and you're trying to refer to both groups as one collective whole? Y'all all do y'all all want to go (laughs) that's the best one that's my favorite one and y'all's all is another especially good one
0: y'all addendums i like them a lot taylor (laughs) i agree very good stuff rounding out our pack today is a man who isn't a cool or a hooligan and he certainly ain't acting the fool again joe lowry hello sir
3: howdy y'all i just i wanted to get in on it that's all i just wanted to feel like i'm a part of the team
0: how does y'all sit in the southwest of the united states joe i'm not aware of its um usage there
3: Y'all isn't a a super common phrase out here, but Arizona has a lot of people, and I'm sure this is true everywhere, but has a lot of people just from other states that sort of end up in Arizona. So there's a number of folks, like I have some relatives that are from Texas or at least spent time there. So we do have our our small share of y'alls out here in the Southwest.
0: Well, we have a small share of listener questions to get to today, Joseph. Why don't we start off with this one from Derek Light. Hello, Derek. Thank you very much for this one. He asks, if you had to pick one football commentator to narrate your life, Who would you choose? Uh, I'll start off, Joe, I'll come to you first. I'm going to start off by saying um, the commentator of my life would be very, very bored watching me (laughs) sit at home all day on a laptop and sometimes going for a short run. Scintillating stuff.
3: (laughs) Hey, I think in that case, though, Ryan, you want someone who's going to make things exciting, right? I mean, we don't all live... Lives that are maybe as exciting as a ninety minute soccer match. As so as Taylor's I th- Yeah, true. <laughs> Taylor's entire life is is legendary at this it's point. So but not true. The day to day. Oh, Taylor, don't don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to the listeners. Come on, Taylor. The day to day If I want someone who's going to make my life exciting, the answer has to be Ray Hudson, right? If I'm looking for someone who's going to be enthusiastic about me just walking to the fridge and looking for a snack, that's Ray Hudson. He's going to come up with some ridiculous centipede metaphor. It's going to be be beautiful, right? So (laughs) that's one option. I have three here. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on other people's toes, but when Ryan said I got to go first, I'm going to take full advantage of my opportunity. Derek Ray is my second choice here because... There's times when I'm either preparing for this show or maybe I'm out to eat at a restaurant or something like that where I have no idea how to pronounce certain things. And Derek Ray, boy, he knows how to pronounce stuff. Not just German language and German words, I'm assuming. But I'm going to be using him to help me pronounce all sorts of different things because I'm going to hear his commentary in my ear and everyone else is going to hear it too, which is going to be weird. But I'm taking Derek Ray for pronunciation situations. And if I want someone who's really going to analyze my decisions and and really give me some positive or just useful feedback, Emma Hayes. I'm taking Euro 2020 Emma Hayes. She's going to be on analysis. She's going to be telling me that was a good move, that was a bad move. Hey, you're Podcasting performance wasn't too good today. Here's what was wrong, or here's what you did really, really well on Soccer One Hundred and One today. And the Hayes is going to be in my corner and, and commentating my life for analysis purposes.
0: Joe, I love all of those, but Derek asked you to pick one soccer commentator. You've misunderstood the assignment. You
3: fail. Okay, that's you know I'll take that. You didn't ask me to pick one, so that's that actually works for me.
1: I think he did. He picked Derek Ray. Derek Ray's his commentator, and then he's got Ray Hudson and Emma Hayes to do the
0: color commentary.
3: True. Can I just get the whole team? I'm just going to take one commentary team, one punditry
2: group here.
0: All right, then. Graham, I'll come to you. Who's going to narrate and be mildly disgusted by the food that you put in your body each day?
2: (laughs) It has to be Peter Drury, right? Nobody, nobody even nice. comes close for me. He's so poetic. Always knows when to to drop a line and when, when to let the the moment breathe. When you have a big soccer moment, you want Peter Drury to be the person on the mic. However, as uh, we alluded to earlier, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Like, good luck adding poetry to the commentary of my life. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, like, maybe Taylor's life, but I feel like an average Tuesday would wouldn't for me wouldn't really be worthy of. Uh, of Drury commentary. Uh, yeah, good luck getting a poetic line out of me just sitting on the couch and occasionally getting up to make a cup of tea. It's probably not uh, that exciting. If
0: there's one person who could do it, Drury's the man though, Graham, right? He?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can make football poetry out of anything, or uh, just general poetry.
0: Taylor, you are, uh, as we know on Total Soccer Show, the world's most interesting man. I'm about halfway through my 1,000-page tome about your extremely interesting <laughs> life. So how do we bring that to life via the medium of soccer commentator?
1: I, I appreciate the kind words. I'm not sure I agree. I feel like I'm I'm fairly, fairly boring, and I'm going to steer into that because you could go... I like Arlo White. I think Arlo White does a really good job of injecting emotion but also telling you what's going on. I agree with Joe that if you're going to go with an animated figure, you want Ray Hudson, but I'm going the opposite direction. If it is just going to be kind of like, narrating the mundane and evaluating it appropriately, I need Lutz Fenn doing that for me. And I need it to just be very dry, very, like, this was an unacceptable usage of mustard. He should not have used mustard on that sandwich. We all know that mustard is not... Like, I need him to break it down and just be very (laughs) cut and dry about what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong. Lutz has lived a life. He's been around the world. I feel like he's got plenty of experience to kind of know what's going to end up being a good choice, what's going to end up being a bad choice.
0: Lutz is the only man who's had a madder life than you, Taylor, to be fair.
1: <laughs> I don't come close to that man who <laughs> stole a penguin and got arrested and played football and all on, on all the continents except for Antarctica. I think he never pulled that
0: one off. Yeah, he's bad as a box of frogs, is Lutz, and he's also um, <laughs> bringing players into St. Louis City. I see. Couple yes, he is th- in the last week. Uh, more, more power to them. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone for a pick here that n- none of you have selected. Andre Kentor, I'm going for. And oh, I've gone for more of a functional purpose here because I want him to sort of guide my life and remind me not to do. So, for example... Ryan goes to get a snack. There's apples, there's bananas, there's Oreos. He's reached for the Oreos. No. <laughs> Ryan's, <halfway through>. Ryan's <laughs> wife is halfway through watching Queer Eye on Netflix. He asked if he can put the game on instead. No. <laughs> Watch it on your iPad, Ryan. It'll make your life easier in the long run. I think someone sort of helping me, guiding me through life like that would really be useful, <laughs> Taylor. What do you think? I think it would be really useful for like when you're driving
1: through a road that has water on it. If it's slightly flooded, how should you drive, Ryan? You should drive slow. Like, yeah, it
0: all kind of works. I see where you're going with this. When the light turned green, you
3: go. Ding. There's, there's <laughs> there you go. so many rhyming yeah. words
0: we could do with this one. Wonderful stuff. And if I was going to have a more sincere, um, if we're pointing for uh, in Derek's question in the direction of my favorite soccer commentators of the moment, I'd probably go Matteo Bonetti and Andre Cordero. Yeah. Who I think... A really, really excellent um, chemistry on ESPN doing this Serie A amongst other things. Great knowledge, great sounding voices. They fill the spaces well. And goodness knows there's a lot of spaces in my day. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Derek, for that question. Let's move on to another here from Michael Folland, who says, How much do soccer managers and analysts think about one-on-one matchups, e.g. Team A's fullback versus Team B's winger? In basketball, a sport I'm more familiar with, it's quite common for there to be a lot of discussion about how two big men will match up, for example. In soccer, I feel like I hear less of that, but I'm also quite new to the sport, says Michael, so my impression might be mistaken. This is a very interesting question, Taylor. Um, It harks me back. It harks me back. That's not the way to use the word harks. Uh, It brings me back to Kick TV. When I used to work on Kick TV, it was a YouTube channel that helped launch back in the day. Um, We used to do live shows. And the producer would ask us before the show, who's your best one-on-one matchups for this? And I'd never really thought about soccer like that before, as one-on-ones. And I remember specifically, um, it was like a Man United game against Panathinaikos. It was a Greek side of some sort in the Champions League. And being a bit baffled, like being asked to pick one-on-ones, not least because I didn't watch the Greek soccer league that much, to be honest. But then I realised I was hosting alongside Jimmy Conrad, a former player. And for a player... You do think about one-on-ones. If Jimmy's a centre-back, he's thinking about the number nine. He's thinking about one-on-ones the whole time. So it depends for me, Taylor, how you look at the game. For a fan, maybe we don't think of the one-on-ones. But if you're on the field or if you're in uh, the managerial position, maybe it's different. Yeah, I I think
1: you're right to say that it, it depends on your frame of reference and, and what you're watching and how you're watching. I do think it's a thing, but I think you definitely hear about it less than you do in other sports for a couple of different reasons. First off, just the numbers themselves. If you've got 22 or 11 or 11, you've got 22 players. 5v5, you've got 10 players. It's it's maybe easier to track those sort of 1v1 matchups And you are, especially in, in certain schemes or in certain like approaches, you're going to be an ISO, so there is going to be a little bit of that, that sort of like head-to-head, what's going to happen? You don't get as much of that I- in soccer. And I think also part of that is that you can't really be sure where players are going to line up. They might be on the right, but then they switch to the left, and then they go central. Like, I don't think it lends itself that much to some of those sort of 1v1 matchups. And Ryan, I think also, to your point about like not having a ton of knowledge of the Greek League, I think sometimes that billing is just the easiest way to promote a game it's the two biggest names and you'll see it sometimes as like i don't know like the the two best forwards going, it'll be like Zlatan versus Lewandowski. Who's going to, it's like, no, it's not. They're not going against each other. But I think sometimes it's easier to go with the big names that you know will pull people in versus, yeah, I've watched a ton of Panathinaikos. I know that their right back is actually really good in 1v1s, but also really good going forward. And like I think it requires that next level bit of analysis that I think sometimes people don't have the time or inclination to do. But I think where you do see it in soccer is when you get those sort of organic matchups like the one i think of recently was virgil van dyke versus lukaku Mm. i think that was one that ended up being they went up against each other a couple times they got into it a couple times there were some 50 50s there were some aerial challenges and i think it happens more in game as the game is progressing than sometimes the initial billing it might not end up uh playing out the way the the hype has
2: gone i think i think recently we have spoken quite a bit more about um, wingers versus fullbacks as one-on-one contests, maybe primarily because fullbacks are now expected to do a lot more attacking and they can be more vulnerable in a defensive sense. But, yeah, I feel like maybe um, I agree with Michael that in, in soccer it's not such a big thing as it is in maybe basketball um, I think a large part of that is just in, in soccer, it's maybe easier to manipulate space. I'm not a basketball expert, but it seems to me that sport, you pretty much always need to, to beat your man or woman to get to the to the basket in one um, way or another. And in soccer, that isn't always the case. Obviously, you can you can create space a little bit more. It's a bigger player a- a- playing area. And as you say, Taylor, there's more players on that pitch. So slightly easier to manipulate. But yeah, wingers v, wingers v fullbacks, I feel like that's maybe the exception. We do speak about that quite often.
3: Joe, anything to add on this one? Uh, Only really to echo a lot of what's been said. I thought about this some on my own and also reached out to an analyst for a team. And basically the summary is, yeah, teams do think about this stuff, Michael. And and it's a great question from you, and I'm glad you're getting into soccer. This is an awesome way to be thinking about the game because there's there's almost two ways to look at it here, Ryan, to your initial statement. There's the team-wide macro sort of view, but there are a lot of these micro elements as well. There is winger versus fullback or fullback versus winger, striker versus center back. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff. It's more murky and it's more complicated than it is with basketball, even with American football. Though this the two sports soccer and American football have the same number of players on the field at any one time. In American football the play stops every eight seconds, right? So you have chances to reset and to choose, okay, what 1v1 matchup do we want to exploit on this play? Maybe on 50% of plays you're trying to do that, or maybe it's even 100% of those plays. You can still do that stuff in soccer, but it's harder with more players than basketball. It's harder with the ball generally being an open play for between 60 and 70% of a game. And then it's also tricky because you don't have a ton of set pieces. Now that's an area where you can really try to exploit these 1v1 matchups, you can put your defensively, really, you want to put your best defender, aerial defender, on the opposition's best aerial attacker. And that's a 1v1 matchup in and of itself. So you get those things sprinkled in all over the field. Teams want to take natural advantages of those things when they come. Put your best winger on the opposition's worst fullback, right? I mean, that's, it, that happens all the time. But it's not quite as cut and dry as it is for a sport like basketball.
0: Joe, did you say you actually consulted a coach on this one?
3: Not a coach, but an analyst,
0: yeah. Ah, very good. i was wondering trying to, homework, um, trying to do my homework, Ryan. trying to do my homework. I'm very, very impressed. Don't get me wrong, Joe. I was wondering if you'd approach like a, I don't know, a coach who wears Air Jordans and has several G's in his name to try and get the, uh, <laughs> the uh, a- a- analysis here. But that's great stuff. Thank you very much, Michael, for that question. I think the answer there is yes. Soccer managers and analysts do think about one-on-one matchups. Uh, we'll be back with some more questions very shortly after this short break. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We come back with a question from Ira Jersey. Hello, Ira. I hope you're doing well today, sir. Ira has set us up, gents, with quite the proposition here. Here we go. Joe, Graham, and Ryan each get promoted to be national team head coach for a unique tournament. So far, so good. Each coach can only take players from domestic leagues. Joe, you can only take from MLS. Graham, from the SPL. And me from the EFL Championship and League One, so the second two tiers of England. These teams play in a round-robin tournament, which includes the New Zealand national team. Okay. <laughs> Wild <Shot>. card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, are. here comes the kicker. <laughs> After deliberating over the teams, Taylor steps in and analyzes oh which team is going to win the cup. Whew, okay, Taylor, get ready to uh, declare New Zealand yeah. the winner of this tournament. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, who wants to go first? Graham? do you want to step up first?
2: Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll tackle this one first. Okay, so... This is going to be slightly difficult for me as the majority of the Scotland national team right now plays in the Premier League and I suggest it might be difficult for Taylor as well to judge this. But anyway, I will give it a go. So, for starters, I'm ditching the back three that Steve Clark usually plays with uh, because that's designed to get Robertson and Tierney in the same team and I can't pick either of them. So, it's a back four. In goals, that's easy enough. Craig Gordon, uh, he's the best Scottish goalkeeper right now. I'm going to have to try and sell these players to Taylor, right? So, here we go. He... uh, is a a player of the year candidate in the Scottish Premiership this season, a former most expensive goalkeeper in Britain. He's probably better now, even though he's 39, he's probably better now than he has ever been before. And he is the first choice goalkeeper for the actual, the real Scotland national team that aren't having to play the uh, Ira Jersey Super Cup against New New Zealand anytime (laughs) soon. Uh, At left back, Greg Taylor. He's a first team player for Celtic. Um, They're at the top of the table right now. He has got better over the course of the season. Uh, Right back, Calvin Ramsey, he has an 18-year-old who is almost certainly going to Bologna and Serie A for a few million in the summer. He plays for Aberdeen right now. They've had a pretty poor season, but he has been excellent for them all the way through. My two centre-backs are John Suter, who's currently at Hearts, but is going to join Rangers in the summer. He is very good in the ball. He is good at set pieces. He scored against Denmark last year in that big win for Scotland. So he's actually in the team. Um, I'm really struggling after Sitter, so I'm going to go with Ryan Porteous, which is a player that Taylor won't have heard of. <laughs> you before. sounded so sad to say that. Yeah, he's he's been in the squad before the actual squad. He is a physical centre back for Hibernian, and he always has a red card in him. And I think a Scotland cool. team, any self-respecting right. Scotland team, needs a player who is going to ruin everything for everyone around him and then uh, knock about, knock us out of a tournament. So that That's Ryan Portis. Uh, Midfield. I'm going for a 4-3-3. I want my midfield to have the balance of an anchor. Some uh, someone who brings energy and someone who brings control. Pretty much, that, that's kind of the midfield unit I will always look for in a team that I set up. So for the anchor, I'm having Ryan Jack. He is the anchor for midfield anchor for Rangers. He was sensational against uh, Dortmund in the Europa League and has looked really good for Scotland in the games that he's played. So he's also been in the team proper. For control, it's Callum McGregor. One of the few actual uh, he so he is a, a first team player. He's like a, a along with Gordon. He actually makes the team proper. He's been amazing under Steve Clark. He just keeps things ticking over he's brilliant on the ball he's the Celtic captain so he's a leader as well he could easily play in the English Premier League he's got a goal threat he scored Scotland's only goal at the Euros against Croatia he's he's genuinely a superb player and then finally energy and creativity David Turnbull I have mentioned him on the podcast before 22 years old destined for the English Premier League at some point plays for Celtic he's got 18 goals and 15 assists in 69 games for them he's brilliant as well I'm actually really happy with that midfield I personally Feel like that might not be bettered in that 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 unit. Uh, I'm less sure of my awful awful attack. <laughs> uh, so this is going to be rough. On the right wing, I'm going to go for Barry Mackay. He has a Poundland uh, Jack Grealish. Uh, he is a dribbler uh, <laughs> he's a dribbler creator he looked like being the next big thing a while ago then he wasn't now he's doing okay at hearts um, he's also going to cut inside side into midfield and create space for Ramsey on the overlap so I guess that's why I have him on the right on the left wing actually James Forrest, um, who is an important player for Celtic, or has been an important player for Celtic for a long time. He's kind of fallen out of that team recently. He's another dribbler. He's got 96 goals and 96 assists in 438 games for Celtic. So like, he's experienced, and I'm quite happy with having him in that attack. Um, And um, on his day, he's excellent. And then up front, oh dear, this is is bad. This is bad scenes. I'm very short of options, (laughs) so I'm going to go for... Bruce Anderson, who plays for Livingston, he's got 11 goals this season. Livingston are flying high and forth. He's a poacher and a bit of a nuisance. So he's my centre forward. By the way, my front three between Mackay, Anderson and Forrest, they are all absolutely tiny. So I'm probably not putting many crosses into the box or certainly high crosses. So Speedy that's though, my, that's my speed? Scotland team. Say that again, Taylor?
1: Do we have speed in the front three or is it just short and also slow? Oh.
2: Um, Forrest is fast Forrest oh is fast Yeah there we go There's a bit of speed there
0: oh, so, okay. so this one's been Really sold to you Taylor Um, <laughs> Joe do you want to go next Or would you like me to go next I'll let you choose
2: uh, You can go
3: next
0: Very well Uh, This is my team From the Championship And League One Please can I have Pats on the back For not selecting Any AFC Wimbledon players And uh, crowbarring them in here Because we suck <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going for a four-three-three three here, uh, and I, I must admit um, I, I misunderstood the assignment originally on Ira's question here because I just picked players from these leagues, not necessarily English players. So uh, my Alexander Mitrovic and all those kind of players, Harry Wilson, they've all Anthony Robinson as well, they've all gone. Um, I've hastily added players who are in good form essentially which is the Gareth Southgate way of picking a team anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, where shall we start? Let's start up front. I've got three up front. I'm going for Dominic Solanke at Bournemouth. 20 goals this season. Uh, he can be on the right of Billy Sharp through the middle. We know him from Sheffield United. He's got 12 goals already this season and on the left of them, Lewis Graben uh at Knott's Forest. Uh, journeyman forward uh, also can play on the left when needed. Left-footed as well. Um, my 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 three behind them. I've got Chris Willock, who's at QPR at the moment. He came through the Arsenal system. You might remember him being at Benfica for a few seasons as well. He's got 10 assists on the championship season already. Uh, John Swift in the middle at Reading. He's leading the league in assists at the moment. And my left midfielder Ovi Ajaria, who was of Rangers. Uh, you might remember him there. Um, he's in very good, sport, uh, very good form, Excuse me. despite Reading not being in very good form. So I've got Willock, Swift and Adjaria in the middle there. And to remind you, Solanke sharp and Grant up front pretty tasty so far if you don't mind me saying Uh, my back line Joe Bryan for Fulham he's my left back he's the hero you might remember uh, at Wembley when they came up to the Premier League last time he scored two goals including that really good free kick Uh, my right back on the other side Adam Smith at Bournemouth you'll know him because he was in the Premier League with Bournemouth and my two centre-backs finally, or not finally, I've got my goalkeeper to come, but um, Kyle Bartley at West Brom is my one of my centre-backs. Yeah, he came through for Arsenal as well. Um, he's the kind of player who gets up and gets some assists as well. And um, the baggies have got quite a lot of clean sheets this season. Uh, so they, he, he's proven himself there. My other centre-back, Maybe my weak link, but my he's been recommended to me. It's Sean Hutchinson of Millwall, uh, formerly of Motherwell as well. I've got a few former um, players who played in Scotland, Graham. Um, he's Millwall's best player, and he's he's very good uh, in, in the back as well. My final position, Sam Johnston at West Brom is my goalkeeper. He came through Man United system. He was in England's Euro 2020 squad. I think that's a pretty good lineup from the championship. There isn't any League One players, I must admit, Taylor. I, I had figured that. Uh, is it a front or is it a flat three
2: across the middle?
0: Yeah. Uh. It, it, yeah. 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 Okay. That's right.
2: You seem uh. convinced.
0: <laughs> I literally <laughs> had to switch out a couple of these players like 10 minutes ago. But yes, uh, that's, that's what we're doing. So um, Joe, I shall come to you.
2: Okay, so
3: first of all, Taylor, don't give Ryan pity points just because he can't read, you know? Okay, that's that's <laughs> that's first step here. Second of all, both Ryan and Graham picked players with two first names. for So for first name for a first name and a first name for a last name. Ryan Jack for Graham and Joe Bryan for Ryan. Never trust someone with two first names. Never trust people who put people with two first names into their teams. My starting 11 has none of those. And uh, yeah. Taylor, fellow that's American, I will go ahead and read through my lineup now, fellow American. Yeah. Okay, let's do this. 4-3-3, um, there's, there's a mixture of tactical balance in this team. I wanted athletic center backs. I wanted at least two midfielders who can cover ground. I wanted a mix of verticality and technical ability in that front line. I wanted this team to be able to press. I wanted them also to be able to sit back a little bit deeper and defend and hit on the break because I do think this team would be excellent on the break, especially in a tournament like this where a lot of the time possession play isn't always the easiest thing to manufacture in this short period of time. So I'm going to 4-3-3 Matt Turner... <laughs> <laughs> Matt Turner's in goal. Really good shot stopper. He said it to Arsenal. Uh, also, quick note Matt Turner is injured right now and very much doubtful uh, from what I've read for World yep. Cup qualifiers in March. Zach stefan is also currently injured. I know we can't pick him for this team, but this is just a note for U.S. men's national team fans. That's going to be something to watch throughout this month. We're in March. The qualifiers are in a few weeks, so keep your eyes on that, everyone. Matt Turner, though, still in this fictional reality, is my goalkeeper. DeAndre Yedlin is uh, on the right side of my back for Inter Miami right back. Yes, that's right. DeAndre Yedlin plays for Inter Miami. Dewan Jones, left back for me. He's impressed Greg Berhalter in limited time with the national team. Recently, he's really athletic, has some ability to mirror what Yedlin does from right back to left back. Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman are my two center backs, the U.S. men's national team's starting center back pairing. Right now, Kel NaCosta, the number six. We've seen him play really well for the U.S. men's national team in the past. A promising performance for LAFC as well over the weekend, albeit playing a little higher up the field. In front of Kel NaCosta, who's my single pivot in this 4-3-3, I have Paxton Pomical, who we talked about earlier this week. He's my right-sided central midfielder. And then I have Keaton Parks, NYCFC's Keaton Parks, on the left side of central midfield. Parks brings a little bit of creativity and ball progression. Paul McCall brings that work rate in some of those same ball progression abilities as well. I really like that midfield group. It's going to be hard to break down. Then my front three. I've got Jesus Ferreira as that nine, who can drop in but also make some really good runs in the box. Paul Ariola on the right and Jordan Morris on the left. It is not the most inspiring front three in terms of technical ability, at least on the wings, but Morris and Ariola hitting you on the break, hitting you after winning the ball on the counter press. That's pretty scary, I think, for any of these teams. So Taylor, that's my team four three three Turner in goal, got some athleticism in the back, some quality in central midfield, and a mix of skill sets in that front line.
1: I noticed you've also put Pamacal, Ariola, and Ferreira on this in the same kind of area of the field, which makes sense. You've got all three of them playing for the same club as well, right? So you got a little yeah. bit of chemistry, connection,
3: there. baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: two questions for everyone. Uh, Ira didn't specify, so I will ask you all. Are your respective teams being coached by your actual national team manager, or are you picking
3: somebody from the league to manage this? It, it says we were promoted. Sort of thing?
0: Yeah, I'm. It says we
3: were promoted to be national team coaches, so I think, Taylor, oh, okay. that we are in charge here. The buck stops with us.
1: <laughs>
3: oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! Oh, are you okay. taking it into account?
0: Buck. Oh dear!
1: I gotta, I gotta refactor some things. All right, which <laughs> leads—I think I've got a good judged. idea from Joe, Graham, and Ryan. How are your teams gonna play?
3: Uh, I mean, <laughs> yes.
2: you're assuming that I've put a great deal of thought into this um, they're they're going to play yeah my, I'm looking for the wins from a fullback so they're, I'm going to have my wingers cutting inside to link up with Bruce Anderson who's going to be the kind of poacher and then yeah my midfield is going to be a complete kind of uh, not that I'm setting too high a bar or anything, but a Pep Guardiola-esque Barcelona midfield unit where I've right. got Ryan Jack <laughs> as the Busquets, I've Don't got Kyle McGregor as Xavi, and I've got David Turnbull as as the Iniesta. So yeah, I'm I'm setting that by uh, bar high for for my guys. Yeah, I'm I'm
0: doing a um, Barcelona 2011 4 as well because that sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is a tough one. I feel
1: I feel awkward with this one. I, I think I'm going to go ahead and put New Zealand last. In your face, New Zealand. Uh, even though, I guess given that they've played together a bunch of times and have some level of consistency, they're probably one of the, the stronger teams in this competition. Uh, I feel like Joe is bringing the the tactical approach to this one with some thought behind it. I feel like Graham is going to be more like, I don't know, lad, let's just go and do what you need to do. Like I feel like <laughs> Graham is, is not really believing in his team to start. <laughs> Graham, and how, how and you, vibes. I, I kind of, yeah, vibes. What's it going to be at halftime if it's nil-nil? Are you giving a motivated team talk or are you just well, sort no, of no, sitting there I like that? just oh, having chips and gravy and cheese, <laughs> okay That's all. Okay, all right, all right. So that answers that. Ryan, same
0: question to you. What's the halftime talk? Uh, what, if it's nil-nil? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, Churchillian. Go. it's Churchillian. It's Churchillian. It's get out there and uh, fight like you've never fought before. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think I think it's going to be be between uh, Joe and Ryan in the final. Although oh, Graham, come on. Graham, you made a strong pitch, and I like a lot a lot of your nominees. Oh. It's just half of the ones you mentioned. You were also like they're not very good. right.
2: But here's, here's the anyway. context: Ryan has got guys in his team who were absolutely dreadful in the Scottish Premiership.
1: Uh right. oh! Right, name names. Name names, Graham. Kyle, who Kyle I...
2: Bartley, Sean Hutchison. There was another one who was dreadful as well. I can't remember Ryan. Who was the other one uh, that you mentioned that played
0: in Scotland? Ajaria. Uh,
2: yeah, terrible. Was on loan at Rangers, barely played a the game.
0: These <laughs> are right. second division players, Graham. Give me a chance.
1: <laughs> hey, I mean, for, the winner, the well, you winner know what? is... You know what? Ryan Ryan loses now because he made it all about second division. and That's his... I don't know how I feel about that one. So I'm going to say Joe wins. Joe wins yeah. because, yeah. I, although, I'm a champion. little concerned about what happens when half of Joe's team gets injured in the first game,
2: like, hey, and the other no. half
1: has very little pace to make up for that one, but... We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I think Joe wins. Joe Uh, Joe
2: clearly wins because he's got half the actual USMT in his (laughs) team. And let's not pretend otherwise. Joe is the best coach out of the four of us. Let's not even (laughs) pretend that that isn't the case. So yeah, Joe wins. (laughs) But I'm not having Ryan finishing above the Scottish Premiership All-Stars when half his team were wooden spoon winners up here. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, if you had let me finish, I would say that I I think Joe's team is winning comfortably. And then I think it's between... Graham and Ryan oh, for second place to be see a who yourself. goes through. And it's probably decided on oh, goal difference. And That's so good. Graham's oh little lads ducking in there to get some goals. Maybe my, Graham's team wins my, it on goal difference. My
0: team is not swilling the drain with these tiny Scottish people who are eating pies at <laughs> halftime. Come on.
3: <laughs> I do, think, that I do genuinely think Ryan's team eating. would put up a fight. I think Ryan's team would, would be challenging. Graham, I, I don't know legitimately enough about a lot of the players you mentioned. So I, I don't know how that would go. But I think this the teams that Ryan and I have created would be a pretty fun matchup. It is wild that you do
1: have I mean, Joe and your team. You do have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight—like potentially eight players who have started or could start for the the senior U.S. national team. That yeah. probably does make a little bit of a difference, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think so. This this team, and we've seen Greg Peralta rely on a lot of these players before, not not because they play in MLS for any of these reasons, but because a lot of them are legitimately good players, you (laughs) know? Like, I mean, the center backs are athletic and they have some quality on the ball, at least in certain situations. Turner, really, really good shot stopper. Acosta is the best replacement, at least in my mind, for Tyler Adams in most situations. Pamukkul, hugely promising. If he can stay healthy, you bet he's going to be a part of this national team. There's real talent in the team that I've picked. There's real talent in Major League Soccer right now.
0: All right. All
3: right.
1: I'm not. Oh, wait. I have my final question to decide. Then I will tell you one through four. Joe, what is your halftime team snack of choice?
3: Wait, I didn't win yet? I thought I already won. What is going on right now? <laughs> no, this now? is deciding <laughs> rankings now. This is deciding rankings. Oh. Um, so I'm going to have Cheez-Its as my snack because Ooh. they are delicious. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Get that
0: salt in you. All right, cool. I like that oh, one. Yeah. And, and Ryan, for you? Uh, Cheesecake Factory, Bang Bang Chicken and Shrimp, lots of protein and it's wow. You would say cheese wow. 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 All right. Uh, you know what? You know what? Based on those answers, Joe is in first, Scotland is yes. in second,
1: New Zealand yes. is in third, and England is in fourth.
0: <laughs> I'm going to fight to decertify these results like I've never fought before, oh. That's all I'm going to say. Oh.
3: Ryan, I think it's in your best interest to get us out of here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Ira, for the question. That was a fun question indeed, even if Taylor didn't take it seriously. Um, I'm Phil Dissette- at your answer. That's a great answer. Phil Dissette has a question for us. Regarding Graham's observation that Greg Berhalter <laughs> is trying to implement approaches better suited to club teams versus country, I think a national team that pulled that off recently was Chile, but it took several years for them to gel. With that in mind, is it reasonable to think that perhaps the GGG project timeline runs through 2026? meaning, barring a disaster, Greg Berhalter is the guy for the next two World Cups. How does that make y'all feel? Uh, Graham, I'll come to you seeing as a, the question was aimed at uh, y'all, y'all.
2: Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. I think it is reasonable to think that that is probably the the timeline on this, barring a disaster, barring the, the US not qualifying, qualifying for Qatar, which, touch wood, I'm literally touching wood, uh, th- doesn't Easy. look likely at this at this moment in time sorry if i've just jinxed that um but yeah i in terms of how i feel about berhalter being in charge for 6 years i, I have mixed feelings on it so the thought of him in charge for 6 years it it does feel like a a long time for a coach and I, and i think it's fair to say that there are there're still questions about berhalter right now However, I also think the thought of ripping up and starting again after 2022 and hoping it all comes together in one World Cup cycle, that would also make me nervous. So, I guess what I'm saying is, yes, Berhalter, um, until 2026, does have potential pitfalls, but we've come this far now. He deserves the time and opportunity to see the thing through. Otherwise, I'm not sure we can ever judge whether it was a success or a failure in the first place, so... Yeah, I I would say, barring a disaster, he gets that time.
0: All right. Taylor, feel the same way?
2: Yeah, I do. I think he
1: will. Uh, I think barring, as Graham said, that disaster, if they don't qualify or if they go there and they are just played off the pitch, zero goals for, if it's like a a 98 World Cup sort of situation, I could see them reevaluating, reassessing things. But I think if they go to the 2022 World Cup, if they qualify and then if they make it out of the, the group stage, yeah, I think he is offered another deal. everything I have heard seems to indicate that he would take that. I don't, I don't, it doesn't seem like he wants to, to move on to another opportunity. He's not looking to manage in Europe, at least not right now. So to me, it feels like he, he is content where he is. And with how young this squad is right now, this player pool is, I could see a reality in which, yeah, they do okay in 2022. But there's an idea when he sits down with us soccer decision makers of Look, we've done this to this level. Now we're going to build on it. We're going to add this level of nuance. We're going to add this different style. We're going to have multi like multiple different looks for the team, which is what we wanted from the beginning, but it just took us a time amount of time to get here. And now as we moved, as we move towards the 2026, we'll have two or three different formations and approaches and different personnel who can fulfill that. And I have the familiarity with the player pool. He continues to recruit dual nationals. Uh, Balogun is the latest uh, rumor that he is considering a one-time switch. So I think as long as he continues to do those things, even if it makes a lot of people angry, I think he will get that opportunity provided 2022 goes well. And I also think it's worth noting that I am I understand people don't like Berhalter. I understand there are people who think he should be fired. I don't think he's going to be, and I'm not one of those people, at least not right now. But I also think there is a world in which that's kind of a healthy thing. I was re- reading a uh, Leander Charlotkin's Ringer piece when Berhalter was like preparing to start Woke Up qualifying, And it noted that in the Netherlands, it's something like there are 10 million national team coaches or 10,000 national team coaches because everybody thinks they know better. And we are kind of reaching that level where I think everybody's so interested and cares so much about this national team that you're always going to get divided sides on is he good enough? Is he bad? Should he be there? Should he not? And I think that's kind of the nature of the beast. And I think removing that distraction and looking at what he's done and what he continues to do i think u.s soccer is happy with the job but i think he'll probably get that extension if he wants it if 22 goes well
0: taylor if i was stuck in the appalachian mountains and i was stranded he's the one person i want with me he's a bear halter he's a bear halter (laughs) you like that I, I do. From. I
1: think you're only dealing with black bears in the Appalachian Mountains. I think if you were doing like Yellowstone, then yes, I definitely want a bear halter in there.
0: <laughs> uh, Joe, in this scenario, uh, bear is in charge until 2026. That means you have to wait until at least 2026 to become USMNT national team coach. How does that sit with your aspirations?
3: You know what? I'm okay with that. I'll wait till after 26. I mean, really, 2030 has been the target all along, or 2028 if Arsene Wenger and Infantino get their way. But I mean, who <laughs> knows at this point? Really, I. I think to directly answer Phil's question, is it reasonable to think that Greg Berhalter's project timeline runs through 2026? Yes, it is reasonable, absolutely, to think that. Uh, the, the next phrase after that, though, barring a disaster, he's saying, you know, meaning that barring a disaster, Berhalter is the guy for the next two World Cups. I'm not sure I would go that far. And, and I, I think Graham and Taylor, maybe it would go a little further in this direction than me based off of what, what you guys said. I think something has to go right at the World Cup. And Taylor maybe you kind of got to this point, but I think he has to do something. And the US has to show something at the World Cup for Barother to really get the buy-in that he and the team are going to need ahead of the 2026 World Cup because fellas the 2026 World Cup is a huge moment for soccer in the United States. It's huge, right? I don't have to tell anyone that. We know that. But if the higher-ups at US Soccer aren't 100% confident in Greg Barother, They are taking a massive risk by leaving him in that job. 2026 puts the U.S. on soccer's global stage in a way that they really, I don't think, have ever been. And yes, I know there was a World Cup in the U.S. in the past, but this will be different. There will be, or at least there should be, real pressure on this team to perform in a way that just simply isn't there right now. There is pressure now. But it, it will be different in 2026. The, the circumstances surrounding that World Cup are going to be challenging without, we assume, World Cup qualifying for the U.S. team. How does whoever is in charge prepare this group to, to do well at that tournament? I don't know. But I, I think unless Berhalter shows some real progress, and there have been good things about his time in charge, a lot of good things. But, man, there's a lot of stuff still that I don't think is sorted at all. And it has been more than three years now. I mean, I get that this style takes a long time to integrate. I'm extremely sympathetic to that, especially dealing with COVID and the huge chunk of, of time and games that Boralder lost with this group. But, man, the clock is the clock is ticking for me. I mean, I think back to that Honduras game. Taylor, you and I are sitting here talking about, man – if, if things don't change drastically at halftime of that game, maybe he is gone. You know, like, like what, is, what is still keeping him in this job? And things have, have changed a little bit since then, and there have been some really important results. But I, I don't know that I love the idea of Baralther still being in charge in 2026, but I think if his project is really going to work, we need to get a taste of it now in 2022. And, and U.S. soccer will at that point have to decide whether or not they want to
2: continue to put effort and time into this project. I I agree, Joe. To to a certain extent, like if the US finishes bottom of the group at, at at the World Cup and is a complete disaster, doesn't score a goal or whatever, then yeah, I would say that that's probably time for change. But you you have to be so certain that the guy you're getting in to replace him is better than Gregor Berhalter. And with it with it being the twenty twenty six World Cup on home soil, I honestly feel like it would need to be like a guaranteed success like i'm just this is obviously hypothetical but if roberto mancini was obviously available all of a sudden yeah. available and you know it's as i say there'd be an attraction to being the the manager of a team um, hosting a world cup as the u.s would be for 2026 the u.s is you know attractive to uh, football people anyway if you could get someone like that then absolutely but even if it was someone like Jim Curtin, who is a, who's a great coach, and maybe as a future USMNT coach, but at, that's still not of the level where I am absolutely sure and it's guaranteed he's going to be better than Barhalter. And I guess that's the risk if if you make a change in twenty two. But don't you think you could get a Mancini
3: type of of manager? Right? I mean, this is is the US national team job right now. The men's national team job not one of the most attractive jobs and projects in international soccer. I, I think it is. The talent it pool will be is developing at, a, yeah, at a rate that has never happened before. You're going to be hosting the biggest World Cup in history with, I don't know, 90% of the games in the United States. This is, I think, one of the best jobs and, and most interesting jobs and projects in soccer right now. I feel like, and maybe, maybe this is where I'm coming from, maybe you could get a, a shoe-in manager. Maybe you could lure a Mancini type of coach. Maybe you could get a top-level club manager to say, hey, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do this and lead this country at home in a World Cup. Like, take on this project. I think there'll be people that are interested in this job. The the, the type of people that will be interested in the U.S. Men's National Team managerial position will be at a level that we have never seen before. I... Would
1: love to believe that. And I understand you're answering this question, Joe, from a more theoretical standpoint of, like, if this happens and if this happens, wouldn't it be the case that managers would want to take over? I, I'm honestly less convinced of that than you are. I, I don't know how attractive the U.S. job is. I think it's it's fairly attractive, especially with them hosting. But I don't know if you're going to get club managers wanting to jump ship to go manage the U.S. Because I don't think club managers often want to go manage a national team. Unless no, that's true. it's their national team or unless it's one that has a lot of opportunity maybe the United States does but I think with the way people perceive U.S. soccer I think there's still a stigma around it and I think it's still sort of like oh you beat you know mighty Panama oh good for you like I still get that from my friends who are European so I wouldn't be surprised if a manager came over and they don't get as much credit I think there would be some uncertainty there I take your point though that like if there are other candidates out there who seem like they could do a better job or would be a good fit, even if they're not from the United States, which is the question we've had in the past. I think that that's totally fine. I think where I come from with this one is just that I don't think U S soccer is inclined to pull the trigger on stuff unless they are very clear that things aren't working. And even then they were clear. It wasn't working with Klinsman. They held off firing him. What twice, three times, something like that. Um, And I think what I would like to see, because ultimately it comes down to what is happening with the team, how is the team performing, and what is the atmosphere in the locker room that allows that team to perform. And I think we just don't have an answer. We do not know what the players think of Berhalter. We know what some of the players who aren't really getting called in think of him, but that's nothing new. Players who aren't in the regular starting 11 always tend to have a, a shot here or a quote there about how they're unhappy. And I, my hope would be that U.S. soccer sits down with the team after 2022, if they qualify, when they qualify, and they find out how the players feel. And I think that is what tends to kind of seal the deal for managers, is if the, the locker room is divided and players aren't happy and they don't understand it, I think that would be the time when he gets maybe moved on or they look at other opportunities. But if the team is united and saying, nah, he's getting the best out of us, we're enjoying this, let's keep it going, I think U.S. soccer probably keeps it going.
0: All right, Phil, thank you very much for that question. Couple more listener questions coming after this quick break.
1: This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding.
0: Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Here's a question from Adam Kalin, who asks, Why doesn't UEFA stagger the start of Champions League knockout games? With only two games per day, which don't directly affect each other, like a group stage last match day, staggering the starts by an hour seems like a good way to maximise exposure. With an hour between starts, we could all watch the entire early game, and then the second half of the late game, instead of having to choose or switching back and forth. TLDR says, Adam, why give us two hours of Champions League action, when you could give us... 3. Um, of course, Graham, they do stagger group stage games. They have done since 2018-19 to a 7 or 9 p.m. European local start. So that's, what, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern most of the year. Not done in the knockouts. And I must admit, this is a very good question. I have a tenuous theory, Graham. What have you got?
2: Yeah, so th- this is a good question because there there actually isn't a, a-, a specific answer. UEFA haven't really given a-, a reason. I actually have looked into this before. This episode, because I am a nerd and I like uh, broadcast rights and all that sort of uh, stuff, all that news. So that the context, context to this is that the early Champions League and Europa League games are a relatively new thing. They've only been happening for a few seasons. And I remember when they were first introduced, there was quite a bit of protest at that time. Fans and supporters groups, they argued that they were being ignored because it's harder to get to a match at 5 or 6pm than it is 8 or 9pm and people might still have work at the earlier time, generally speaking traffic might be busier, public transport is more expensive and busier as well so basically the argument was that UEFA was putting the, the TV contract the TV audiences ahead of match going fans, so the reason why they're isn't early games in the knockout rounds I suspect might be a political one these games are some of the the biggest games a club will play in a season and so UEFA doesn't want to kick the hornets nest nest too much so this might be UEFA's way of saying we're going to have early games but not for the biggest occasions not for the biggest matches in your season and then kind of putting that to them and being like is that a deal and and I think that's the the way I would read it, as I say, UEFA have never really confirmed that. There's not a you can't go on their site and find a reason, but I suspect that's probably probably the case.
0: Yeah, I think my thinking was along those lines that maybe this this the, the earlier kickoff is deemed lesser. So that is that is a part of it, and also yeah, as you say, uh, if they are thinking about local fans, which you, uh, UEFA and the Champions League probably aren't, then it is more difficult to attend at that time. Taylor, did you take this in any other direction? Yeah, just that I do wonder if
1: with the TV schedule in mind, they do think, what if one of the games is bad? What if it's 5-0 at halftime? People might switch off, we don't want people switching off, so we've got another game where it's still 1-1 or still 0-0, and I think having two games on at the same time does... If I don't want to watch Real Madrid play somebody, or if I don't want to watch Barcelona, or if it's Man City or Liverpool, and I'm not a fan of them, I think they they probably try to have different games on that will attract different people, different uh, supporters, and just people with different interests. So that's the other
3: one I could think of.
0: I think, Joe, the, the, the thing here is the logic isn't sound, is it? They probably should stagger these games, shouldn't they, Joe?
3: And almost I'd be surprised if they didn't start doing that sooner rather than later. I hear the reasons that, that you guys have already brought up. But man, I think from a commercial standpoint, they become more valuable when you have more soccer on TV. You have more opportunities to, to push different products and to push different things. And it feels to me like that's what a lot of the soccer world revolves around. So I'd be surprised if we didn't start seeing some staggered Champions League knockout games when we can all agree it doesn't directly affect the integrity of the competition.
0: I bet they'll stagger the knockout games in the Super League that's all I'm saying (laughs) anywho thank you very much Adam that's a very good question there Uh, Trevor's got a question Trevor L has a question for us Uh, other than the usual coaching punditry and football back end work what lines of work do top level professionals end up in after their career Um, Taylor I think one of the key points here is that most don't need to work after their career. If you work at the very top level and you earn loads and loads of money, you're probably set for life. Um, But there was a time when that wasn't the case. Um, Famously, Jeff Hurst, who was uh, in the England team in 1966, which won the World Cup. He scored a hat trick in that game. He's 80 years old now. He still does commercials and promotional things after dinner speeches because he just didn't make enough money in his career. He made a very modest amount. Ray Wilson, who was in that team as well, in the 66 team, uh, he was a fullback. He became an undertaker when he retired. So uh, <laughs> that's a, I, I, I don't want to hog the airways too much. Uh, uh, Taylor, what are your findings here? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with
1: everything you said, especially when we're talking about top-level professionals. I think they do make so much money... Uh, and ideally, have people to help them manage it. That you'll see a lot of nonprofit work. I think because there are ways to use that money, or and I'm sure taxation probably factors into that. But you'll usually see them associated with charities and nonprofits and the like. Uh, sometimes they'll write a book. That can be one opportunity. And the other one, there seems to be a lot of hospitality industry. There's a lot of hotels. There's a lot of restaurants. Feels like buy a restaurant, buy a bar, even if that's an unsafe thing for a normal person to do. They fail a lot. I guess when you've got a ton of money and maybe you want uh, a cuisine offered in the city you live in that isn't pre- presently offered or not to the standards you have, then you open up a restaurant, you open a- up a hotel, and away you go.
0: I th- that used to be the thing, Taylor, like players would buy a pub and run it Mm -hmm. after that was like it's like 90s era players that was the traditional thing to do I seem to remember on CBS coverage they talked to Jamie Carragher about Carragher's in New York and they were like you own that bar there and he was like he barely seemed aware of it which is quite amusing (laughs) yeah I think it's a lot of investment I think there's a lot of investment properties and investment types of
1: things he's not aware of much to be fair (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Graham where did you go with this one Um, we know that there have been some high profile uh, careers Uh, George Ware became president of Libya for example um, Liberia, baby. Liberia. Yeah. Uh, Shevchenko became a politician and a professional golfer. What else did you find, Graham?
2: So I started going down the, the agent route and then realized that was pro- that probably counted in football back-end work. So then I started going down the, the restaurant and bar route. So just to add a few more example, uh, examples, Frank Lampard owns the Chelsea Pig near uh, Stamford Bridge. For anyone who has been told Trafford, perhaps... No, that was the just John Harry's nickname. Hey, <laughs> oh! goodness me <laughs> very good very good um, let's hope that Mr Terry doesn't listen uh, or we'll, we'll, or we'll have to get the fire trucker lawyer um, so <laughs> yeah perhaps the most famous chippy in football is owned by former Mayonated and Scotland player Lou McCary um, it's on the corner just as you kind of turn the, onto the street at the front of Old Trafford and I love that it's just called Lou McCary Fish and Chips um, and another example Clarence Sedorf owns the Fingers Garden chain of Asian restaurants which I hadn't heard of but I went into their site. And they have a lot of locations. That seems to be pretty successful. Or uh, Clarence Seydorf is just um, piling his money into a black hole that's never going to return. Um, In Scotland, this is a slightly strange one, uh, a line of work a lot of former professional footballers go into here and I don't know if this is common around the world, it's um, taxi driving. So in Scotland, obviously, our league maybe isn't as lucrative as it is in in England, so a lot of the top players who have played here will still have to get a quote-unquote normal job after they retire. And there seems to be a lot of former um, players who are taxi drivers now, and one of them is Kevin, Kevin Kyle, who's a former Scotland international striker not even that long ago, so he would have caught the kind of... Um, the 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 boom of this Scottish this, the SPL you know he played for Scotland and Hearts and he played for Sunderland as well he's now a he's now a taxi, taxi driver and there's a number of former players who are now taxi drivers I don't know what the link is there but yeah seems to be a common route
0: uh, it's a cash business that's all I'm saying I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are, uh, Joe, did you find any, any others? I found a few others. Daniel Agger, a former Liverpool player, is a tattoo artist, has his own tattoo studio. Uh, a former Wigan player, um, uh, De Zio, who became a detective in Holland. That's fun, isn't it, Joe?
3: That's actually, yeah, that's cool. I like that a lot. Um, I have a couple as well in the business realm, and I think that's what a lot of these players end up doing. Taylor, you said investment. I think that's true. These are a little bit different, at least this first one. Former Milan and Arsenal midfielder Matteo Flamini apparently founded a bioscience company and was doing quite well for himself and doing some really interesting stuff. So that was one that I found and didn't know about in the slightest. The the one that really I, I did know coming into this is a handful of former MLS players have gotten into real estate. Real estate seems to be a pretty popular post-career avenue for a lot of these players because you can get your real estate license while you're playing without, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but you can do that in your free time. You have a lot of free time as a professional athlete after training. So that's something that I've seen at least a handful of former MLS guys go into. That's one thing. And the other thing is, is philanthropy and social change. We see a lot of players, or maybe not as much as we'd like, but a lot of players kind of moving into that space after they retire as well. So it's really
2: a whole number of different things across a broad number of industries. It, it would be remiss of me not to mention, this is definitely not philanthropy. can't say that word, Um Thomas Gravison became a professional yeah, poker player he after did. he retired in Las Vegas. He
0: made some headlines. He made a lot of money, didn't he? I remember that.
2: He did. Uh, He's got a fortune, apparently, of over 100 million pounds. <laughs> He's done not bad. <laughs> he was
0: good. He was good at it, apparently. I like, Joe, that the uh, the MLS players going into real estate so they can move from being on MLSsoccer.com to MLS.com. MLS.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good.
3: That's really good.
0: Very good indeed. And a very good question, Trevor. Thank you very much. I'm sure there's lots of other jobs that um, soccer players move into. Rich and compelling, the post-career of soccer players. Uh, One more bonus question, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind, uh, Taylor. One aimed at you here from Demetrius Osborne, who says, I never looked so closely at the TSS logo until this very day. Is there a reason why the ball is a hybrid between an NFL football and a regular football? Please share the story behind the logo. Now, my immediate thoughts, Taylor, was this ain't no NFL football. That's an old-timey soccer ball with stitching on it. Is that right? That is
1: correct. Uh, And you said a soccer ball as well, so your people will now mock you. Uh, Yes, it is indeed. Uh, Daryl sent me that when he had gone home to visit his dad once. It's a photo, uh, I'll have to post it again, of his dad's boots and old ball from the 50s. The boots had, like, welded metal studs in them, and the ball had... Uh, holes for the the lacing to go i think the lacing had since been removed but the ball remained and we liked it we liked the old school look and that was the one we used for the logo so it's it's daryl's old daryl's dad's old soccer ball
0: that is very very cool and you've just shared the image in our slack channel and uh yeah it's one of those proper old school brown balls with the stitching yep. it looks like it weighs like 50 pounds it weighs like i a...
1: don't know how they used that thing in the rain and how you yeah. didn't just <laughs> yeah, immediately get a concussion when you would head the ball. Yeah, it, it, I, guess I you think did, that's probably. what happened. Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the boots looked like you'd maybe, if you were like building like the Empire State Building in the 1920s, yep. that a kind yeah. you'd wear for that. Um, did, did, yeah, they don't look pleasant. They don't look pleasant. No, they don't look, yeah. Yeah, they look better these days. I'll say that much. A little bit, um, a little bit. Taylor, did, did Daryl's dad play
1: at a high level? I don't believe so. I think it was just amateur kickabouts and the like uh he was he was a factory worker in wolverhampton i believe uh and yeah so i think that was just sort of like his his saturday sunday uh kickabout
0: gear very nice well there you go demetrius a little uh, peek behind the curtain at the tss logo there gents that's our listener questions done apart from taylor failing miserably at ranking our uh, teams i think we did a very <laughs> very good job taylor that's rockwell fair. thank you very much that's fair that's fair loser says what <laughs> loser says Arizona Joe thank you very much Ah, uh, thank you Ryan and Graham Rutherford a pleasure as always sir thank you Ryan listener thank you very much we'll catch you all later until then bye <laughs>